you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Well, it is time to open up your Bibles to Luke 19 and join with me as I read. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up to him and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God and thank you, Nat. Well, City on Hill, today we come to the final encounter in our encounter series. Uh, This is the ninth episode, the ninth encounter that we have now looked at. And so we're going to land the plane today. And so would you pray with me first? Uh, as we prepare our hearts for what God might show us in this particular encounter. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we stand on it. uh, And today we are particularly reminded of the importance of your word and uh, hearing your voice to us as it's written in the scriptures. Lord, we thank you that you're ready to speak to us today because we have open Bibles. And so come now and do that. And we know that you uh, know us intimately. And so for each one of us, wherever we are, however we are uh, watching and tuning in this morning, I pray that you would give good gifts to your children and that you would give us exactly what you need, that you would encourage, that you would comfort, that you would console, that you would rebuke, that you would convict, that you would build us up so that we might know you and that we might be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus. And so make him the hero, make him big. This morning we pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Well, you can tell a lot about a person based on the recommendations that Netflix throw before them whenever they log in. And Netflix and the Netflix algorithm have me down to a T. You know, Zuckerberg has his metaverse uh, where he's going to find out everything about our lives. Netflix already have me down to a T because every single recommendation that they put before me is a documentary about either sport or crime. And so I was particularly tuned in when I saw recently that a new documentary came in my recommendations that included both sport and crime. It's called Bad Sport. And so I sat down uh, to watch the the few episodes there that are available and I went straight to one particularly that brought back all the feels from my childhood, the nostalgia of my upbringing, because I wanted to see what happened 
with the South African cricket captain, Hansi Kronje, or should I say Hansi Kronje. Hansi was a leading man in post-apartheid South Africa. He was a bit of a cultural hero as he captained the cricket team as it was allowed back onto the world stage. And he did so seemingly with integrity, with leadership and as a professing Christian. But in the year 2000, the game was up. Because after having his phone calls wiretapped by the police, it was discovered that Hansi was actually in bed with the bookmakers who paid him large sums of money to manipulate and ensure specific results on the field. And so he pocketed a whole lot of money from some dodgy people who themselves were pocketing a whole lot of money from taking advantage of everyday gamblers. And so in this point, his reputation was in tatters. Hansi's career now a disgrace. And I was struck by what he said as he sat before the commission who were investigating his crimes. Despite his uh, being a very rich man through legitimate means by South African standards, Crony recounted the temptation of more. He said this, he said, I had a great passion for the game, my teammates and my country. But the problem is the unfortunate love I have for money. I do like money. I'm not going to try to get away from that. And it was that love that drove Hansi's fall from grace because he never played another cricket match again. And so he was a hero at the top of his game and now he had been brought to the bottom over nothing more than a few extra toys and perhaps an extra zero to an already large bank account. Now this week we come to an encounter with Jesus that is effectively part two on the conversation that began in the encounter that we had last week. Because last week and this week again, we have met two very rich men. Last week, we met a, a rich man who, having met Jesus, walked away from Jesus back to the safety of his riches. And it highlighted to us the gravitational pull that money has on the human heart. That was something that was felt 2,000 years ago, something that has felt, been felt in the human heart in every single society and culture, and perhaps even more so down to today. Well, today we meet another rich man with similar riches, and we're going to see how he is going to respond to Jesus and how Jesus responds to him. And so today's going to add to the challenge of last week's encounter. Which way are we going to walk when we encounter Jesus? And how will our encounter with Jesus affect our own handling of money in our day? And so let's find out what happens and why it happens. Come with me to Luke 19 verse 1 if you're not there already. Luke starts this story with a seemingly throwaway detail. He entered Jericho and was passing through. That is, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. But Luke wants to make this point uh, to show us and put Jesus somewhere geographically. That is that he is in Jericho, which is about 40 kilometers from Jerusalem. So a natural stop for Jesus to pass through on his way to Jerusalem. Jericho is that same city made famous in the Old Testament where the Israelites would uh, sung as they walked around it seven times before the walls found down, fell down. Well, by this time, 1500 years later, the walls I'm sure will have been rebuilt 
The city itself was quite different and it had now become a town that was a major toll collection point for goods passing east and west in and out of the city and through to Jerusalem. And so if a first century consumer was perhaps tracking a package, you know, you get a text message, your package is on its way and you click the link to find out where it is, it's very probable that that package would be held up in Jericho because it's there that the tolls, the, the GST, were accrued. And so you can imagine the kind of commerce that was taking place here in this city and the kind of, therefore, people who will have been attractive to the opportunities and the, the money that will have been there. And so in this city, Luke introduces us to one of those people who perhaps was attracted to those opportunities. He tells us in verse 2, And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Now, as he's done before, we've seen it throughout the encounters. Luke adds here a behold. He wants us to pay attention. Get this. Check this out. This is not any ordinary interaction that we are about to see. And the behold Luke puts there is attached to the profession of Zacchaeus. Behold, he's a chief tax collector who was therefore rich. Now, tax collectors themselves were seen as traitors of their countrymen because they had effectively disowned their Jewish identity and their Jewish brothers and sisters, even their their Jewish family and extended relatives because they'd gotten in bed with the Romans, the Romans who were unjustly oppressing and occupying Jewish land. The Romans who, to the Jews, were seen as God's enemies because they were getting in the way of God's promise that they would occupy this land. And so then to work with them in taxing your fellow countrymen and your fellow people, well, it made tax collectors the most despised profession in the country. Even further, it was understood that tax collectors kind of had a bit of a a quid pro quo agreement with the Romans that while they would get the taxes for the Romans, they were also able to skim some off the top for themselves. Even worse, this man that we meet, Zacchaeus, is a chief tax collector. And so he supervised the other tax collectors. He was the boss of the tax collectors, like a a mafia don or a CEO of a pyramid scheme or perhaps even how Hansi Kronier himself made money off the people who made money off the people they were taking advantage of. And so Zacchaeus was a greedy traitor. And Luke's behold also extends to what happens next. Because we're told in verse 3 that he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because of his small stature. And so we read another thing about Zacchaeus, and that is that he was very short. Uh, It's said that French military general Napoleon Bonaparte, he too was particularly short and it was that shortness that apparently drove him in his pursuit of power. He had what is known as small man syndrome and was compensating for that shortness, that physical presence through his might and his power. And perhaps what drove Zacchaeus in his greed, what drove Zacchaeus in his desire to stand apart in his material wealth from his countrymen was a Napoleon complex. He was very short. And his small stature presented a problem because Jesus was coming by. And by this time, the the crowds are surrounding around Jesus as they flock to him. And as he is about to walk past, this small man has no chance of seeing Jesus. But he 
so wants to, that he does something quite out of the ordinary for a rich businessman. Verse 4 says, So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And so Zacchaeus climbs up a tree so that he can get a glimpse of Jesus. And so let's summarize who this man is. He is on the wrong side of almost all the standards upheld in his society. He is an immoral fraudster. He is likely very lonely and socially isolated. And he is even looked down upon physically, such is his stature. But he wants to see Jesus. Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus. And he doesn't just kind of, oh yeah, it'd be pretty good to see Jesus. No, he really wants to see Jesus. And so he breaks the mold, runs, finds a tree and starts climbing. And it highlights to us that there is no social convention, no moral standard, no popularity qualification that entitles us to see Jesus. Nothing that we need to fulfill, nothing that we need to qualify for that we can see Jesus. You know, we might be on the wrong sides of all the standards of our own culture. Maybe we have taken advantage of people in shameful and serious ways. Maybe we are lonely and we've lost friendships and social connections that we once had. Maybe we have convictions that don't line up with the cultural consensus. Maybe you're a real estate agent and on top of that, you sell used cars on Sundays. Whatever it is, you might have all the traits and the look of someone that our culture wants to ignore. And yet Jesus won't. Jesus is not like our culture. He is not like our world. In our world, you you need to be in the know. You need to work the system. You need to be in the right places and and meet the right people and get networking. You've got to fit in. And if you don't, you'll have your opportunities curtailed. But in the kingdom of Jesus, you don't get your opportunities curtailed. You get invited. That if you don't fit in, you don't get cancelled you have even more opportunity to meet Jesus. Jesus is for everyone and anyone. And Zacchaeus will see Jesus and he'll do it because in God's providence, Jesus just happened to be walking past a place where there was a tree that Zacchaeus could climb up so that he could see Jesus. And so we read next about what happened as Jesus came past the tree. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. And so Jesus finally gets there and it's as if he's known Zacchaeus all along. And isn't that a fitting image for the reality that every Christian experiences? When we first see Jesus and discover who he is, we find out that he's actually known us all along. Everything we thought that we'd been hiding from God, Some of those things that we've been nervous about God hearing about. Would he accept us? Could he possibly even forgive that? Well, actually, God knows those things all along. Actually, God sees those things even clearer than we do. He's known our failures. He's known our fears. He's known our quirks. He's known our hearts. He has known everything that we have tried to keep secret. And Jesus here knows the kiss. And he knows his name and he knows he's been greedy and he knows he's mistreated people and taken advantage of them. He knows he's been unjust and he also knows that he has a house and he knows that he wants to stay there tonight. 
so that he can reveal more of himself to Zacchaeus and to those who are watching. And we see Zacchaeus' response. It says in verse 6, So Zacchaeus, he hurried down, and he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Zacchaeus receives Jesus joyfully. And him receiving Jesus into his home is probably just a confirmation that Zacchaeus has already received Jesus into his heart. He has a a softness, a, a desire for Jesus. And it's probably also an evidence that Jesus, in wanting to eat a meal with Zacchaeus, has also received Zacchaeus into his kingdom because he wants to eat with him and stay with him. There's a sense of of connection here, of intimacy, of relationship. And so Zacchaeus and Jesus have this joyful encounter as they meet. But notice at the same time the response of the crowd. Verse 7 says, When they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And so they grumble and scoff because this guy that that Jesus is, is joyfully receiving is a sinner. This religious teacher, this Jesus, surely he cannot go home and eat with a guy like this. We know Zacchaeus. We know that he's done. He, he's taken my taxes. It shows their hearts aren't actually where Zacchaeus's are or is. And it shows us too that the response to people in our society who are looked down upon, the response that we have to people who don't meet our standards or society's standards. People like Zacchaeus, people like fraudsters, criminals, like real estate agents, like those perhaps, you know, those other Christians who have that different political bent to you. Ooh, those, those kooky Christians who are a little bit too out there and intense. Those kind of, oh, those COVID protesters, what are they doing there? Oh, those politicians, what are those decisions that they're making? Fill in the blank for whoever we are prone to look down upon. Now, our response to those people is actually an indicator on the dashboard of our hearts of our response to Jesus. Jesus is inclined to the people that no one else is inclined toward. If we grumble at the very people that Jesus receives, perhaps we're really grumbling at Jesus. That Jesus is staying with Zacchaeus to prove this point becomes clear later. Because as they are having dinner, Jesus says in in verse 9 and 10, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus has come to seek and save the lost. Now, this was always the plan. We shouldn't be surprised. Back in the Old Testament, particularly in uh, the book of Ezekiel, God promised in Ezekiel 34, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they've been scattered. And verse 16, I will seek the lost and I'll bring back the strayed and I'll bind up the injured and I'll strengthen the weak. And so when Jesus shows up and when he claims and and proves that, that he is this God, well, it's no surprise then that he goes exactly to the very people that the world was allergic to. Because while on the surface there is nothing that 
qualifies or disqualifies some, someone from coming to Jesus, there actually is a type of person to whom God is most attractive. The very people that Jesus came to save. Those who are lost. And we've seen it right throughout this series, haven't we, in, in our encounters and we could kind of go through every chapter of the book of Luke and we would see this loud and clear. In Luke 5, when we encountered uh, an unclean leper who fell at Jesus' feet in humility, who was healed. This is a, a guy who had been uh, socially ostracized because of his disease and his sickness. And yet Jesus healed him. Jesus invited him to, to, to prove his cleanliness to the priest and re-enter the temple. In Luke 7, we met a, a poor and grieving widow who had lost everything that she depended on, including her son, and yet Jesus reaches out to her by raising her son. In that same chapter, uh, over dinner, it wasn't the religious elite whom Jesus received, but rather the sinful prostitute who was weeping at his feet. In Luke 8, it was the crazy guy who was possessed with demons. In Luke 15, it's the youngest son who takes his inheritance, who, who sinfully squanders all of his inheritance and messes up his life, but then who comes to his senses in humility, realizes that he's lost and heads home to his father. It's him who is received into the kingdom and yet the older son who thinks he has earned his right to be there is outside of the party. In Luke 18, it's not the megachurch celebrity pastor who rocks up into the temple and gets received or goes home to his home house justified, but rather the publican, the sinner, the tax collector who stands in the shade of the temple and beats his breast, repentant for his sin. And last week, we met the rich young ruler who had everything going for him and yet he met Jesus and walked away back to his riches. And today we meet the rich chief tax collector who brings Jesus home with him. And so everyone Jesus receives or finds just happens to be someone who has come to a point of humility in their life and recognizes that apart from him, they can do nothing. That they are lost without Jesus. That they are in the grip of sin or suffering or grief or shame. And it's right in that realization that Jesus meets them. Do you know, every single human being cut off from their creator, whatever their life looks like, however it compares to the people around them, if they have not received Jesus, they're lost. Our world is not going to tell us this. In fact, our world will try to pave a way, try to direct us in a, to, toward a place where it thinks that we will be found, a certain lifestyle where we will finally find it, certain relationships where we will come to kind of nirvana. Our world will tell us how to think, how to talk, how to look, what to do. And we're going to be very tempted, and we are indeed very tempted to go along with that vision. I was reading this week the story of a few people who have actually become lost because of their GPS devices on their smartphones. Three Japanese tourists ended up in the ocean because they unquestionably followed their GPS navigation. 
in Europe, there was a Swiss couple who were hoping to holiday at the island of Capri, but found, found themselves instead in the industrial town of Carpi in northern Italy. And in the US, tragically, even some people have died because they have followed Google Maps into isolated uh, and abandoned remote areas and been lost or stuck. You see, similarly, entrusting ourselves to the cultural directions that our society points us to or places us in or the pressures that they put to try to make us go left when we should go right, well, actually, it will keep us lost. And we live in a time where it's more than just the world giving us the wrong directions. It's that we're actually operating from the wrong map altogether. To know you're lost, you need to actually find out where you really ought to be. And the only map that can tell us who we really are and where we really ought to be and therefore how far we've got to get where we're going or how far we fall short of where we should be is the Word of Jesus, the Bible. You might not feel it, but your feelings are not the right map. It might not be popular, but popularity is not the right map. No one else outside of the Scriptures might be telling you this. But if you are not entrusting yourself to Jesus, then you are lost. And yet Jesus has come to find you. Jesus has come to seek and save the lost. And perhaps as I detail this to the camera and and you are listening to this, wherever it is that you are listening to it, perhaps you're watching right now, perhaps you're catching up on the podcast, perhaps it might be this very moment that Jesus is seeking and searching you out. See, it's significant that our text opened today with this seemingly insignificant passing comment that Jesus was just passing through Jericho. Because Luke really wants us to know that in the mind of Christ, he was not going to stay long in Jericho because he had somewhere else to be. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And in going to Jerusalem, Jesus knew exactly what was waiting for him there. Indeed, he was seeking and searching it out. You see, we have arrived 2,000 years late, too late to climb up a tree and like Zacchaeus, get to have Jesus see us and call us down and say, hey, I want to come over for dinner tonight. And so how is it that Jesus might be seeking and searching us out when he's actually physically not here for us to see? Well, Jesus' journey to Jerusalem is how? Because that's where he was going before us to die in our place that the power of his death on the cross might call us home to him. And so when we know where Jesus is going, we can actually see ourselves in this passage too. That we are lost, yes. But Jesus has come to seek and save us. Such is Jesus' love for you that before you even knew you were lost, he had already done everything for you to be found. Such is Jesus' love for you that 2,000 years before you showed up on the planet, Jesus was here, having come down to the planet to live your life in your place, to die your death 
in your place and to rise again. That there might be such a powerful grace flowing from Him to you that He can capture your heart, that He can bring you low, that He can help you realize that apart from Him, you can do nothing, that apart from Him, you are lost, that all the directions you've been following in your life to this point are incorrect, are wrong, are leading you astray and perhaps even into dangerous places. And yet here is Jesus with this grace beckoning you to come to Him, to receive Him joyfully and to live your life in relationship with Him. So you don't need to get your life together. You don't need to fit in. Really, you don't need to do anything all like that except receive the reality that outside of Christ, you are lost, but because of Jesus' life and death, you can be found. And so trust in Jesus today. Put your trust in Jesus today. You might not know who you are or where you're going or what is in store or how your life will play out, but none of that matters when you are in Jesus, when you're found in Him. And so trust in Jesus today. And if you've been trusting in Jesus until today, keep trusting in Jesus today. When we encounter this kind of love, we finally feel found because we are found. And we see in the text too that when we encounter this kind of love, our own loves change. Because just as this crowd revealed where their hearts were toward Jesus by grumbling that He had received a sinner, so in a positive sense, we experience the love of Jesus. When we experience that, our hearts gravitate towards the things that He loves. And so we see that this happens with what happens to Zacchaeus in verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. This reminds me of that great story in Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. You probably know where I'm going if you know the movie uh, but in the story, the, the main character, Jean Valjean, is a man hardened by spending 19 years in jail for stealing a loaf of bread to, Steve, uh, to feed his starving sister. And after those 19 years, he leaves bitter, he leaves broken, and then to cap it off, he's bitten by a dog. And in his bitterness, he uh, commits a, a cruel crime, an act of betrayal uh, to a, a bishop who, who takes him in. And yet he betrays this bishop by stealing some of this expensive silver cutlery after he stayed there overnight. But Jean Valjean, is, he's caught and he's brought back to the bishop to both return the goods and confirm that they are indeed the cutlery and the candlesticks or the cutlery of the bishop before he's taken off to jail. But to everybody's surprise, as he's brought to the bishop, the bishop says to him, what were you doing? I gave you the candlesticks as well. You should have taken them with you too. And so the guards are forced to let him go because the bishop is saying it's actually a gift to him. Jean Valjean is completely taken aback by such grace. And the book says that he was about to faint. Such was the undeserved favor that he was receiving. At that point, the bishop turns to him and says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. 
I withdraw it from black thoughts and from the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. And Zacchaeus himself is a man who no doubt will have been hardened by his own treacherous greed and fraud. You can imagine the amount of self-justification that would have been going on within him that he will have used as the looks and the gossip and the scolding of people that kind of uh, would have hissed at him as he was walking about the city. He would have had a giant chip on his shoulder trying to tell himself why he was sticking it to these people, why he was doing the right thing. He fully deserved the shunning that he was receiving from society around him. And yet Jesus wants to stay with him and Jesus receives him. And in response to the love of Jesus, Zacchaeus' heart is completely transformed. His greed is completely replaced with this new desire for generosity. The goods that he'd bought with the money from the poor, he wanted to give back and make right to the poor. The very things that previously enslaved him, these money and possessions, he actually now uses those very things to serve Jesus. And that's what happens when we encounter Jesus. You know, we've looked at, at two rich people over these last two weeks. One chose his riches over Jesus. The other chose Jesus over his riches. And we'd be ignorant to, to not hear these passages these two weeks and not see them as implicating us. The modern equivalent of the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus is not Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. Rather, it's people who do their shopping online, families with two cars, essentially anyone who can afford a house deposit somewhere within the city of Melbourne, people with an investment property or shares in a company, people who have a fridge, people who live a consumeristic and capitalistic society, people like us. When we encounter Jesus, our handling of money should change. And just as our response to how people whom Jesus receives reveals where our hearts are at, so too our attitude to money and possessions indicate really where our hearts are at toward Jesus. The Bible tells us that, that wealth in and of itself, well, it's, it could be said to be a positive thing. Because people like Abraham, Job, Solomon, they're called blessed and God blesses them with wealth, money and possessions. Because money multiplies the opportunities we have to do good in the world. But it's also a dangerous thing. It can be used for great good, but it's also a, a, a trap that pulls us so far from Jesus that it can actually make us lost. Because money also multiplies the opportunity we have to do evil in the world. And in a world like ours that is built on and driven by the love of money, in a culture where accruing more money and more possessions is normal, a place where 99.99% you know, of, of human societies that have ever lived on this planet would look at our society and think, gee, that prosperity, that wealth is ridiculous. In this kind of place... People who have hearts that have met Jesus should look ridiculous to the society. We should look ridiculous to our culture. We should be people like Zacchaeus who look at our wealth and think, where can I give back? Who can I build up? What good can I do with what I have? And so what is your 
generosity like? What has God blessed you with, not so that you might lie back on it, but rather you might send it out to bless and build up? You know, if we could look at your household budget or see your bank statements, would it reveal to us and to the world, this is somebody who knows that they were once lost, but have been found by Jesus. Their their hearts have changed, obviously. Their their priorities have been reconfigured, obviously, because they must have met someone outside themselves that has been radically generous to them. I mentioned at the top the story of Hansi Kronje. His love of money became the very thing that ruined his reputation and ended his career. But what was a public scandal and a devastating decline in God's providence was apparently actually used to lead Hunzi back to Jesus again. Because after losing everything, he rededicated his life back to God and was baptized. Tragically, you might know the story, two years after all this went down, Hunzi would die in a plane crash. His brother said that as he went to identify Hunzi's body after the crash, he went not as a traumatized loved one, but in peace that his brother had gone to be with Jesus. And as I was reading up on this story and uh, after watching the documentary, I found that, that even years later, there were still journalists who were writing articles, really just scolding Hansi for what he did, seeing him and his legacy as completely tarnished forever. All integrity lost, he was too far gone. But just like him, And just like Zacchaeus, it doesn't really matter what other people are saying. It doesn't really matter what is going on around us. It doesn't matter what social standards we don't meet. It doesn't matter where we've fallen short. Everyone who trusts in Jesus will go even better than Zacchaeus at this point. Because Zacchaeus was able to have Jesus over to his house for dinner. But to all those who trust in Jesus, Jesus says, hey, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And Jesus is going to invite us to dinner to an eternal supper, to to live with Him forever and receive us into His house for all eternity. And that is the invitation to all of us, to be found in Jesus and to find forgiveness, to meet Jesus and encounter ridiculous grace and to surrender to Jesus by recalibrating how we handle the blessings of God that He sends into our life. And so you might be washed up, worn out, ashamed and completely lost. Well, congratulations. Jesus is looking for you. He has come to seek and save the lost. So let's go to Him now. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank You so much for Jesus. Lord, that We are lost without you. We confess that apart from you, we can do nothing. And that includes even uh, recognizing our need for you. And yet such is your love for us, such is your love for the world, that you have come to seek, to search, to find those who are lost. Lord, we confess that that's us. 
And we praise you that you have found us. We praise you that you have revealed yourself to us. We praise you that you have received us joyfully. And we praise you, not because we have contributed in any way to that, but rather in spite of ourselves, you have accepted us in Jesus. Lord, make us so cognizant of your love for us and the radical grace that you have provided for us in Jesus. That he, being God, didn't find it something to hold on to, but rather emptied himself and became a servant. That even further than becoming a servant, you uh, became someone who suffered and died for us in our place. And yet we praise you for your victory over death. We praise you for your victory over sin. We praise you for your victory over our, our shame. And we praise you for rising again, that we can be caught up with you, united with you in such a way that we can know you, live for you, and then live with you forever. And so, Lord, give us the hearts of Zacchaeus. Give us these transformed hearts that want to make the most of what you give us in this life so that we might give it back for you and your kingdom, that we might extend the grace that we have received out to others. Lord, may you be better to us than anything else. And therefore, may everything else submit to your will and your plans and your direction in our lives. Lord, once we were lost and now we are found. May we never move past that reality. May we never think that we uh, found you, that we found ourselves, that we came of age, that we grew up, that we matured into someone who could be accepted by you. No, Lord, this is all of you. And so make that true for us and in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.